you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You may be seated, and the children are dismissed for children's worship. Thank you, Vicki. We are in our series entitled Strangers in a Strange Land, as we've been walking through First Peter. And uh, it's been really fascinating to see how we are strangers in a strange land. We are different than those that we live around. Uh, We might look the same, we might sound the same, but the reality is, is we are at our core different if we truly live the life that God desires that we live. We're going to look different because the world values uh, pride, possessions, and stuff. Well, the life of Christ is about giving, about prayer and praise and giving to the poor and helping those in need. The, The world is about amassing great fortunes having fame, while the life of Christ is about dying to self and sacrifice and serving the Savior. And the more that we do that, we're going to see that we are different, that we are to be going out into the world of giving our lives to help bring them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we're going to be we, we are ambassadors, as the, the Bible talks about, as we're going out with our, to, to speak to the truth of Jesus Christ, to those that we work with, to those that we go to school with. And, and as much as we start living this life that Christ desires, we're going to find ourselves increasingly different, but we're still to be ready to go and tell, no matter what. No matter what may come, we're to do that. I'm reminded of this past week, I was meditating on this passage, and I was reminded of the theme of the Coast Guard, which is called Semper Peritus. It's Latin, and it means always ready. The Coast Guard recognizes that no matter what storm may come, they are to be ready to go. No matter how bad it is, no matter if they have to give their life, they're to go. Because God, that they are chosen to go do this task. In a similar way, God has chosen us strangers though we may be, as ambassadors to this world to go and help seek and save the lost because that's what Christ himself has done. He has commissioned us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age, according to Matthew 28. So we are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, just as Vicki read today. We are to always be ready. Semper paratus. We are to be ready to go at a moment's notice. You know, as a pastor, we're taught that you're to be ready to do three things at a moment's notice. You're to be ready to preach, be ready to pray, and be ready to die. And I don't think that's just for pastors. I think that's for everybody. We're all, we should always be ready to share the truth of Jesus Christ, knowing that we are going to encounter people as we go out into this world that are going to tear us down, that are going to fight us, that are going to oppose us and the message of Jesus Christ. And many of us have a tendency to be like the College of Cardinals were this past week. We get in our little holy conclaves, 
It's our jammer frequencies that keep everything out so no one knows what's going on. But that's not the life that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to go out into the oceans of life where the waves are just covering over us, where we're being tossed about to share the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done on behalf of sinful man. That's what God has given us the task to do. And as much as we continue to live this life and do this, we're going to find ourselves as strangers in this world. So the question is, is as we go out into this world, how are we to respond when people oppose us? We don't have a good track record here. We have a tendency to respond just as angrily as people respond to us. We get tense. We don't know what to say. So we have a tendency to let it build up, and then we explode. Or we just withdraw completely and don't do anything. How are we to respond when people accuse us? When you're aligned at your workplace, how do we respond when our unbelieving spouse continues to put us down? How do we respond in our school when our classmates are doing something entirely different and they don't want to follow this life or believe this truth that we so much espound? How do we respond in the midst of this world? That's what Peter's writing to, and he's admonishing us, because he knew that we're going to face opposition. It is inevitable. I'm reminded of Pastor uh, Saeed Albini. I don't know if you've heard about him recently. He's been in the news. He's the Iranian pastor who has been arrested and put into prison in, in, in Iran. He converted from Islam in the year 2000, which itself is, uh, it was more tolerated under the previous regime. And it, he got married to his wife, Nagme, uh, who is a, a, um, an American citizen who was visiting relatives in Iran. And they ended up um, engaging in this wonderful ministry of church planning that God had wanted to do in them. And, and it's amazing to see what God has done through this ministry. I mean, the man got saved in the year 2000, and since then, I mean, they planted over 200 churches in 30 different cities. That's phenomenal. Phenomenal. But uh, under, with the election of Mahmoud uh, Ahmed Benajad, which I can't even say his name, Ahmed Benajad, okay, what he said. And with his election, the, in the uh, persecution uh, of Christianity started to intensify. And they recognized this so that they, they decided to flee, thinking that they could do more from far away and then continue to kind of come in and strike, come in and strike. So they, they settled in Boise, Idaho, and uh, they, they joined a church, and, and, and he started to make many different trips to Iran, especially between the years of 2009 to 2012, he was trying to establish an orphanage. So he, he makes nine trips between 2009 and 2012. Now, his last trip is he, he's on a bus going from Turkey into Iran. The bus is stopped. The authorities come on because they've recognized who he is. So they arrest him. And they accuse him of being subversive to the government and because he's trying to turn people away from Islam to Christianity. See, Christianity is a minority religion in the, according to the Iranian constitution. And one can be a Christian, but you can't convert to Christianity. Put that together. So basically, you have to be born in it or already be it, but you can't convert from Islam. That's considered to be a crime. So he's arrested, and he's told that he faces the death penalty. So what does he do? I mean, he continues to be faithful. He's been sitting in prison, and he goes through trial, and instead of giving the death penalty, death penalty they gave him eight years in prison for being subversive to the government for trying to teach 
and convert people to Christianity and Jesus Christ. And what I'm amazed at is the quote that his wife said that it's behind me. Because she says, it's, it's amazing to me that he, he's become a Christian and how that's considered to be a subversive act. It's surprising to me that it's considered to be subversive to call men to be better husbands and fathers. That's a crime? To have women to be better wives and mothers, to be us to be better citizens, to be better employees, to be better employers. And that is a crime. Because that's what God is calling us to, this selfless life of service, of loving, of giving our lives on behalf of others. And she said this, and I think it's very apropos. She said, when he became a Christian, he became a criminal in his own country. And I've stopped and I've asked myself that question. Is it going to be true, and, and will the same be said of us in our own nation? Because when you can come to Christ, this world recognizes you as an enemy of the state. Because you are no longer espousing the values of this fallen world that is at, at enmity, at war with God. And when we encounter that, how do we respond? Because many of us in this room have grown up in an environment where Christianity was the majority. And we were comfortable. But now that comfort's being threatened. We're, we're dealing with a loss of power. And in some ways, we're actually going back to much more of the spirit of the New Testament. Because we're finding ourselves at odds. The more that we espouse the truth of Christ, the more that we live this life that Christ desires that we live and the Bible portrays, the more that we are going to find ourselves at odds with the rest of this world. So how do we behave? How are we to understand our suffering in the midst of this as we're losing power, as we're trying to understand how we are to testify to the greatness of who Jesus is? Because we, we, we've really made some deals in history that haven't been good. In that we, we have leveraged and made ourselves political powers, not understanding that the life of Christ is far, far different. It's not about politics. It's about calling and being an adherent to a kingdom that is not of this world that Jesus talks about, that transforms in how we live in the here and now, and then helps us to be salt and light in the midst of this world, calling that world to repentance, to a higher standard of living. So Peter calls us to live this life, and what does this life look like? That's what we're going to really iron out today. We need to understand that we are going to be, we need to be ready we need to be ready to preach, we need to be ready to pray, we need to be ready to die, to suffer for the kingdom of God. Just like Saeed Albini is right now. He is suffering for the kingdom of God, and we too need to be ready to suffer if that's what God has for us. But before we go on, let's pause for a moment and ask, ask God's blessing on this message time. Father, we come before you hunger, hungry to know, to understand, to apply your word to our lives. May your name receive glory. May you draw us near to yourself. May we truly be always ready to go and give a reason for the hope that we have. May your name receive glory in this message time. Lord, we pray for those that are going through difficulty. We pray, I pray for those who, who are, are so distracted by the things of this world, who are just in the midst of suffering. Lord, may you show yourself to be Savior. May you give them a reason for their suffering to help them understand why and how they are to suffer for the glory of your name. So, Lord, please magnify your name today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So stay with me as we walk through our text today. First of all, as we look through this text, we see that there is a suffering that's going on. 
that's going on, and we need to have a proper perspective on suffering. So let's pause for a moment and get a proper perspective on suffering, because we are all going to suffer. It's inevitable. As long as we draw breath, as long as that we can still have a pulse, we're going to suffer in some way, shape, or form. I don't care who you are. But there's many different reasons for suffering, because many of us have a, have a wrong understanding of why we suffer. Sometimes we think, if we're suffering, then something must be wrong. Just like we experience pain in our body. If we experience pain, we know something's wrong. What is it? We want to fix it. But not all suffering is bad, and not all suffering is good. So we need to understand that there's many different reasons that the Bible shows us for suffering. First of all, it's this. We're going to suffer because of sin. We're going to suffer because of sin. Sins either that we have committed, we're going to suffer the consequences for, or sins committed against us. Those are reasons, some of the reasons we suffer. Either the sins that we have done or have been done against us. And Christ paid for both. Christ paid to, for our, the sins that we've done, and he also paid to take away the pain and the shame that we have experienced on the cross itself. He became a victim, just as many of you in this room, and I know that many of you in this room have been victims. You have been the subject or been, had some heinous acts of evil perpetrated against you. You might have been abused, molested. You could have been sexually abused, verbally abused. You, you could have been raped. You could have had some injustice done to you. And you think, I've not done anything. Why am I suffering? Because you're suffering at the, the hands of another person. But Christ himself suffered not only to take away our sins, but the pain of the sins done against us. When Peter says, by his wounds you have been healed, it carries both that in it. That he takes away the pain. He takes away the shame by paying for the, the price for their sin as well. So we see that there's, we suffer because of our own personal sin. We also suffer because of our sanctification. Sanctification. And that God brings suffering in order to help us depend upon him. As C.S. Lewis said, that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But he, he desires to bring us near to himself. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans chapter 5. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not sh bring it, put us to shame, but because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So God brings suffering to help bring out the, the, the smell or aroma of himself. It's like a tea bag. How many people like tea? Okay, you're all weird. I like tea, right? Although that was my, never mind, never mind. It's my nickname, my rap name, <laughs> hot tea. Anyway, it's when I was doing ministry in the city. Just forget that part. But the idea is, is that a tea bag doesn't have the aroma go through the water until the hot water comes onto it. See, it's the idea that when we are suffering, the aroma of Christ comes out of us. And God wants to, 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 to bring us to a closer understanding and further conform us and transform us to the image of his son. So he brings suffering into our life for that reason. That we might depend more upon him and we might reveal his life. Now, it also could come of, as a result of uh, God desiring his power to be seen in us. It's closely related to the point right before, that his power might be seen in us. 
I'm reminded of the story of the man born blind in John chapter 9. I love that story. It's a fantastic story. When Jesus and the disciples come upon this man who was born blind, and it was common understanding in Judaism that a person experienced suffering or a hardship or a birth defect because of either their own sin or because of the, the sins of their parents. So they asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? And I love what Jesus says. He responds, and I want you to see this up here. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God might be bringing something into your life so that the power of God might be evident in you. Some type of hardship in your workplace or even in your marriage. And you want to know, how is this going to work? And our tendency is just to cut bait. No, it's that God wants to show the, his power in your marriage, in your workplace, in your school, and to bring his name glory. That he is God. And that you are bringing glory to God by adhering to the truth of his word so that when people look at you, they say, how can they stay in that situation? And you say, it's because of the Savior. And they go, he must be an amazing Savior. It's a pretty amazing thing to see. So it's that we see that suffering might be because God desires that his power be seen in us. Or it simply could be because we live in an evil society. We live in an evil world. This world is fallen we got to quit pretending that everything's perfect. We are insulated from the rest of the world, folks. What I mean by that is, is we really don't understand. We, we think that everything's great. I mean, we get really, it, okay, it gets really bad when the most stress that we experience is that your cell phone doesn't work right. Or you got a virus on your computer. I mean, that just irritates us. It's like, it, it, it's like we're in cattle cars in Germany. We, oh, I got a virus. I'm so, ah! My phone's not working. It's like, are you kidding me? There's people that are, that are suffering all over the world, and this is what you're complaining about? To put us in perspective here, let's get an idea. This is a fallen world. This world is not our home. Why do we expect this fallen world to be any different than it is? It's a fallen world. There's evil perpetrated in this society. And we're going to experience it. It's, it's just inevitable. We're going to experience evil in this society all the time. That's why someone came over and kicked over my snowman. My kids built a snowman. We're standing in our window talking in our bedroom. Look out, some kid just jumps out there and kung fu chops our snowman. And I was like, I'm going to kill you. It's like a domestic act of terrorism against my snowman. And I'm like the slowest guy in the world. I'm like, what's going on? My wife is already running down the stairs. You're like, la, 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 you know. It's ready to kill whoever it is. I mean, and this is just the depravity of man. I had one night, I went outside. We had to take our garbage out on Sunday night. And I take my garbage out, and I hear this. I look out front. I'm like, there's a car, and it's driving away. And I hear these guys laughing. I'm like, what's going on? I look out. He stole my garbage can. <laughs> Who steals a garbage can? That's just the result of living in an evil society. You know? I mean, this is bad. Stealing a man's garbage can. And it's part of living in an evil society. So we understand that we're going to experience evil for uh, several different reasons. Another one is spiritual warfare. Angels and demons are real. 
They are real. And angels and demons are at war. And they are vying for your soul. And we have to understand that there is a spiritual war going on. We, ha- we have a tendency to, t- looking at spirituality or spiritual beings, we have a tendency to go extremely focused on spirits where everything that goes wrong is a result of a demon. Or we, we don't do anything at all whatsoever. Now, the idea is right in the middle, that there are demons and there are angels. And there is a, a heavenly war going on. And we see this in the book of Job. Job undergoes this most horrific suffering that a person can possibly imagine. And he, he, and it's because Satan has targeted him because God brings him up as an example of a righteous man. And Satan goes, the only reason he's righteous is because your hand is upon him and you protected him from me. Give me full shot. Give me access. And I'll show you that he's going he's gonna to curse you to your face. God goes, there you go. And then Satan does his best. And he employs tactics that he's still using today. What's the first thing that Satan goes after? The guy's career career. He goes after his money. He goes after his possessions. He goes after his job. Everything in a day, he loses everything. And then what's he go after? He goes after his family. He goes after his kids. I had this exhibited and seen in my church when I was in Chicago. We had a man who was very, very angry. He wasn't very stable. And he had problems with some of the leaders that were much, much older men. So instead of going after them, he went after their kids. He went to their homes He would sprinkle things on their porches, threats and accusations. He would terrify them and made them scared. Not that he had issue with them, because he was trying to get to their parents. See, that's what Satan does. If he can't get access to God, he'll come after his kids, which is us. And he's going to come after not only us as being God's kids, if he can't get to you, he's going to go after your children. If he can't get access to you, he's going to get your child or your teenager. That's what he's going to do. He's going to bring you down. And that's what he did to Satan, except he took, I mean, to Job, except he took Job's kids out. And then that didn't work. And God still lifts him up as an example of righteousness. And he goes, skin for skin. He goes, I want his life. Let me afflict him physically. So there's the other thing. He can't get your kids. I mean, if he, can, he, he can't affect you through your job, he can't affect you through your family, he's going after your personal health. He's going to bring you down. And that's what he did to Job. And Job still continued to adhere to God. Now, did Job ever really know that he was, he was being kind of a pawn in this spiritual battle? I don't think he did. But we too might experience suffering because of spiritual warfare that's going on. Now, there's another reason that we might experience spiritual warfare. And it's the idea is that there are secret reasons that we're never going to know. Secret reasons we're never going to know. Deuteronomy 29.29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all of the words of this law. Now this passage conveys many things, but one thing that it can see is that God does things that we're never really going to know. We won't know until glory. There's secret things. We may never know the reason for our suffering. We may never be able to pinpoint it why our spouse or a parent or died or why we experienced a certain evil in our life. We may never know. And this is where we go back and we have to trust in the goodness of God. We know that he is good, that he is loving, that he is just, that he is merciful. So we need to be make sure that we are relying on the character of God in the midst of this.
So we understand that if we are strangers in this world, we are going to suffer if we testify to the greatness of Christ. And we need to understand why we're suffering. And the idea is, is that we are suffering for doing good, not for evil. We don't want to suffer for sin, but we want to suffer because of our sanctification, because we are living the life that God desires that we live. But there's more there. As we are living this life that God desires us to live, we need to make sure that we are honoring the Lord as Savior. Honoring the Lord as Savior. See, that's what Peter is talking about. Look at verse 15 for a moment with me. Peter says, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason or for the hope that is in you. Now, there's many different things there by honoring the Savior as holy. The word there literally means set apart, sanctified. Now, when we think of holy, sometimes we think of clean and pure, but it's much more than that. It's the idea of completely separate, that he is completely holy, different than us. Yes, he comes near to identify with us, to take our sins upon himself, but he is still holy. It's what... C.S. Lewis captured in the Chronicles of Narnia when he was talking about Aslan. He said that he's not a tame lion. He can't tame God. We're to look upon him as holy. He's separate. He's set apart. And we're to do that within our hearts, which means that our lives need to be in conformity and respond to that. We can't just give an outward observance of it. It's got to be an internal thing that transforms the rest of our life. We're to be honoring Christ the Lord as holy. And that takes two parts. First of all, it means reverence. Reverence. We're to revere the name of God. Revere Him. Now, it's interesting. If I would say different names to you, you're going to have ideas coming up in your mind. If I say Tiger Woods, you're going to think golf. You're going to see, you're going to think, hear the name Michael Jordan, Derek Rose. You're going to think basketball, Brian Urlacher, football. And they, they carry meaning to, those names carry meaning with them. And we recognize that. Even when we name our children, we have ideas and meaning in our mind. When you, for those that have kids or are getting ready to have kids or you're thinking about having kids, when, you, when the idea came up that I'm going to name a person and a name came into your mind from your spouse that your spouse liked, but it brought image of someone that you knew in your past that had that name, then you're like, I can't name them that. Because it carries meaning to you. Representative of that, who that person was. That's why people don't name their babies Hitler. Oh, hey, little Hitler. So cute. Because it conveys meaning, right? It conveys meaning. We think of evil. We think of all the things that have been perpetrated. We think of all of that. And there's all of this stuff with that name. Now, let's think about the name of God. How much more meaning is associated with God's name? Holiness. Associated with the name of God. So we're to revere his name. Which means, don't use God's name as a swear word. Don't just say it in jest. Don't use it as a form of manipulation. See, when we talk about blaspheming the name of God, it doesn't just mean using it as a swear word. It also means saying that something that God didn't say. Like, God told me this. Well, you better be sure that God told you that. Because if he didn't, you're blaspheming God's name. So we got to make sure how we revere the name of God, that we treat it with special reverence. 
So we revere the name of God, honoring Christ the Lord as holy, but it also conveys the idea not only of reverence, but obedience. Obedience. See, we, this is the difference between saying it and doing it. We're to revere him, but we're also starting, we must live according to what he says. Jesus summed it up very quickly and succinctly. He said this in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If we are honoring Christ, we must do what he says. Dishonoring Christ is not doing what he says and not living according to his word. We must live according to the word of God and what he has for us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we see that honoring Christ the Lord as holy involves reverence and obedience. Now, we also to remember that it's not only a consistent thing of living this life, but it's also being ready to articulate and give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. So that it means giving a sufficient reason for our hope in Christ. Giving a sufficient reason for our hope in Christ. That's what verse 15 is about. Now, giving a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, we must remember that it involves us being courageous. Notice it says, Do not have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The idea is, 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 is having a fear of what other people think, but not letting their stance, their opposition, rock us spiritually. To, to upset the apple cart, to make, to make us have anxiety. That we're to be courageous. Just like the cowardly lion. I need courage. We all need a little courage. A little courage. Because many of us, we're naturally fearful. We're fearful what other people think. We're fearful what other people will say. We're afraid because we find our self-worth in how people think of us rather than how God thinks of us. One of the most indicting passages in Scripture is where, and I was reading it today in my time with the Lord, I was reading, I'm reading through the Gospel of John, and it's where these men, it says that they believed in Jesus as the Christ, but they, would, they refused to re- confess Him before men because they loved the praise that came from men more than the praise that came from God. It's an indictment, an indictment to their souls. So we're to love God more. We're to be courageous, very courageous in how we are to speak and share the name of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we also have to be confident, confident. Now, Peter says we're always being ready, being prepared to make a defense. The word in Greek for defense is apologia, from which we get our word apology, but it's not saying make an apology like, I'm so sorry, I'm a Christian. That's not what it's talking about, okay? It's the idea is, I understand what it is that I believe, and I'm ready to give a reason for the hope that I have, which means that I I need to be confident because I need to understand the truth of Jesus Christ. I need to be able to articulate it. So let me ask everyone in the house a question. Can you give me the crucial points of the gospel in a minute or less? What is it you're calling people to? Can you break down the essence of the gospel of what someone needs to understand? 
Because the more that you know it, the more confident you are in doing it. Remember the first time that you ever did something and you're really nervous on how it's done? I remember riding a bike. Remember riding a bike? I don't know if some of you might have been like perfect when you got on. I wasn't. I kept riding and then I, you do what? Fall over. I'm trying to teach my, my daughter how to ride a bike now. And, and she goes on and I say, hold the steering wheel steady. And she's fearful. So she jerks it and then she falls over. Now, the worst thing I could do as a parent is just to leave it there. Okay, bike riding is not for you. So what do, we, what, do, what do I, as a good parent, do? Put her back on the bike, right? And you keep doing it. And I hold her. And I keep doing it. And you keep doing it. And is she going to fall? Yes. But is she going to fall less and less as it goes on? Yes. Yes. She's going to become more confident because she keeps doing it. See, that's the same thing for each one of us. The more that we think about the truth of Christ, the more that we study the truth of Christ, the more that we are involved in the worship of Christ's name, the more that we are fellowshipping with one another, the more that we are encountering one another in small groups, the more that we are become confident in knowing what it is that we believe. So we understand that we need to be doing that, to be together as a body of believers, sharing our lives and opening it up. And that's the scary part, because we're afraid it's going to hurt. And it might a little bit. It might. But the idea is, is that we all have spiritual cancer. And it's the, God takes the, the sword of his word and uses it as a scalpel to cut apart the unbelieving and sinful parts of our soul. So we might truly do what he wants us to do. Let God perform his spiritual surgery. Now, we're not only to be courageous and confident, but we're also to be courteous. Courteous. This is where we don't do well historically. See, Peter responds that we are to respond to skeptics with the truth of Scripture that is completely reasonable and do it with gentleness and respect. Now, gentleness is a fascinating word because it means literally power under control. Power under control. And respect actually is, is the word fubu, fobu, from where we get the word phobia. Now, we think fear. That's not what it means. It actually means having a greater fear of God, knowing that God is watching what we say. So we're respecting and treating them like an image bearer of God. So we're to be doing it in a manner of gentleness and power under control, but we're understanding it knowing that we fear God rather than what we fear of man. So we're going to tell the truth, which means we care enough to confront, to tell the truth that people are sinners. Now this is where the unbelieving world hates us. Because we testify to them that their deeds are evil. And not just that the unbelieving world does, but even the actions that we have done. We can't say that we are perfect. We recognize that we are sinners ourselves. Someone has said that the gospel is simply one beggar telling another, another beggar where to find food. It's very true. So when we tell someone that their deeds are evil, we're not saying that we're perfect. We recognize that our deeds have been evil and that Christ paid the price for our sins as well because he calls us to repentance. So we're calling them to repentance. And an unbelieving world doesn't like that at all. At all. That's why Paul was testifying before the Roman judges. And he starts reasoning about the kingdom of God and self-control. And the king gets disturbed. Why? Because he, he had slept and had an affair with his brother's wife. And she's right there. And he couldn't control himself physically. So when Paul starts talking about self-control, he goes, no more, enough! Because he realized that he was going to be held to an account for his action. All men and women are called to get an account that we are destined to die once and then face judgment, giving an account for our very lives for what we have done. 
and how we have control ourselves. And the unbelieving person cannot control themselves without the Spirit of God. And even for the Christian, we have to put to death our flesh and live according to the resurrection of the Spirit of God is bringing the life of Christ alive in us, teaching us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Through grace. Through grace. So we're to be courteous in how we respond. Notice also, we are also to be consistent. Consistent. Notice verse 16. Having a good conscience. And that when we are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's actually a command here that we're to maintain a good conscience and have good behavior so that every time we are slandered, there's nothing to connect to. In other words, it's this, your spiritual Teflon. So when accusations fly, they slide off because your life isn't that. You've lived such a consistent life that accusations can't stick. Because people look at your life and they go, no, that's not them. That is not them. See, that's what we see in the life of Daniel. Daniel, man, this guy is spiritual Teflon. He is, he is a, um, an exile from Jerusalem. He goes to Babylon. He's raised uh, to, and given all the best training. He becomes one of the government officials. And then he, he um, ends up, the government gets conquered. The Babylonians do by the Medo-Persians. And then he finds himself high up in the Medo-Persian government. And the officials there are jealous of him because he's such a man of integrity and wisdom and upright. So realizing that they can't get access to him in any of the normal means, they find that the only uh, Achilles heel he has is the fact that he loves God. And so they exploit it and use it against him. So they get the King Darius to put a law into effect that says if anyone prays to anybody but Darius is going to be guilty and put into the lion's den. Darius signs off. And they go and they wait for Daniel. Daniel knows that. It even says in the text, he knows that it's signed. He goes home and he does think what he does every day. Three times a day, he goes to his prayer place, which was uh, other buildings could see in where he was at, and just prays like he normally does. So they run to the king and they go, guilty. What are you going to do? Darius realizes he's been conned. And he likes Daniel. So it, in the text, it says that he goes to the, find a way to remove Daniel. But even the king can't change the law once it's in place. And he is so anxious that he stays up all night and fasts for Daniel. This is a pagan king. A pagan king now has endeared himself to Daniel to get Daniel's freedom. Daniel is cast into the lion's den. We all know the story. God miraculously preserves him. The king rushes there the next day, goes there and says, Is everything okay? all right, Daniel? Is your God protecting you? And he says, Oh, my king, live forever. And I can't imagine when Darius heard those words. He's alive. He's alive. And then he turns to the guys that accused him. You're not going to be. <laughs> and he says he cast them and their families into the lion's den. And before they even hit the ground, the lions devoured them. Now, the point, though, the reason that Daniel is such an example for us is because he's a man of upright, uprightness. He was spiritual Teflon. Nothing could stick to him because he was consistent in his behavior. And so are we to be. You can't be a Christian just on Sunday morning. I'm tired of this. I, I don't know where this came from, but you can't be this way, one way here and one way everyone, everywhere else you go. You could say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And if your life doesn't reflect it everywhere else, you're living a lie. And the only person you're fooling is yourself because God's not fooled. You could fool other people, but who cares what other people think? They're not the one that you're going to stand in front of and give an account to at the end of your life. 
to give an account to God. So we have to be consistent. That's why he's saying have a good conscience. Good behavior. When they see your good behavior, it's the understanding is, is that you've been doing this consistently. Consistently. Now, notice also that you're to have a clean conscience. Clean conscience. That's what verse 16 is saying. What is the conscience? It's our internal witness. Now, the word comes from two Latin words, con meaning with and seo uh, meaning to know. Now, the idea is that the conscience is the eternal, internal judge that we have that enables us to understand or approve our actions or condemn them. And it's like a window through which we see the world. And when our conscience, when we sin, our conscience gets dirty. Now, we can continue to drive and live, but our, it, it gets dirtier. Have you ever had that in, in your windshield? When you're driving and your windshield gets dirty and you don't wipe it away, you just let it sit there? And then after a while, you d- it continues to get worse. And then, like six months later, you finally wipe it clean. You're like, wow, everything's in color. How did that happen? See, the idea is, is that the more that we violate our conscience, the dirtier it gets. And God, the light of God's word can't get through. And we perceive things differently than they really are. So we have to keep a good conscience. In other words, we keep it clean through confession. If you've sinned, then we are to confess our sins because he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is based upon what Jesus did on the cross for each one of us. So we're to have a clean conscience. Now you can, you can dirty your conscience, you can sear your conscience, you can even pervert and make your conscience evil. And the only way that we keep our conscience in check is by keeping confession and then exercising it. Which means that we're reading the Word of God. The Word of God, it continually helps us to see everything clearly. And it tells us to confess to help wiping everything away. See, it's like the Word of God is the outside layer. Confession is the inside. So the outside, you need to have the windshield wipers. You ever tried to drive with your windshield wipers not working? You ever had that? It's really difficult. I remember one time driving down the street going, I can't see! I just couldn't see. It was freezing so bad that it actually froze my windshield wipers to the car. And there's, so there's times where it's on the outside, and that's the word of God cleansing us. But then we have to make confession on the inside to wipe it away. That's what we're to do. So we, we need to have this clean and cleansing, or this clean conscience in the sight of God, making sure that we are being consistent. Now, it's interesting I mentioned that at the onset, the Coast Guard's official theme was Semper Paratus, which means always ready. But they have an unofficial theme. Their unofficial theme is, is you have to go out, you don't have to come back. You have to go out, you don't have to come back. See, for the Christian who's a stranger in this world, this world is not our home. We're called to go out and share, even if it means giving our very life. Because we don't have to come back to this world. So as Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm a winner either way. The only thing that's really standing in front of me, or as FDR said, the only thing to fear is fear itself, right? I'd like to change that. The only thing to really fear is God. Fear God, fear Him. Fear Him who has the ability to cast body and soul into hell. Fear God more than anything else. 
and understand that God's going to give us, give a, an, we have to give an account to God. So we're to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have now by our words and our lives, going and honoring Christ and the reality of our heart so that a lost world might see Jesus in us as we continually go out in the midst of this sinful world, testifying to the greatness of Jesus Christ, that a lost world might know that Jesus is who he said he is, even if it means dying to make that happen. God calls us to go out, to always be ready, but he doesn't say that we're going to come back. Instead, we're going to go up, which is far greater, far greater than anything this world could ever have to offer. We must make confession. We must be consistent. We need to be courageous. So we have to ask ourselves this final question. Are we ready? Are we ready? Not, is my spouse ready? Not, are my kids ready? Not, are my parents ready? But am I personally ready? Which means, if for me to be ready, i got to do some business with God. i got to make confession. I've got to repent of my sins and receive Him as Savior. And if I've already repented of my sins and received Him as Savior, I have to continually lay myself at His altar, being a living sacrifice by taking up His cross daily, living the life that He desires me to live as I continually lock arms with the people of God to be instructed with the Word of God that we might revere the person of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Help us to be always ready, to be semper paratus, to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. Help us to be, to establish the truth upon our hearts, not only upon our hearts, but on our very lives, that we might live the truth that we espouse, that we are to always go out, but we don't have to come back. Help us to realize that this world is not our home, that we are strangers, that we're going to suffer, that we're going to go through difficulty and stresses, that we're going to experience sickness and sin. But Lord, we know that with the Savior, we are saved, and that we are sanctified and set apart for a holy task. Help us to be worthy of that task. Help us to continually be transformed. Lord, we know that when we come to you, we are new creatures. We are a new creation, that our old life is done We have a new heart with you. We've been made alive and given a task and a purpose. Lord, help us to live lives worthy of that task. Help us to say goodbye to sin and help us to do righteousness. Lord, forgive us when we fail because we are going to continue to fail. Lord, as we get on this bike of discipleship, we know that we're going to fall as we try to learn to steer and balance ourselves. But Lord, pick us up by your grace. Hold on to us. Help us to do your will. And Lord, we pray that you continually work not only here, but across the seas. We pray for Pastor Saeed Albini, that you strengthen him and establish him, and that you use this as a means of drawing many thousands to the glory of your name. That there might be many of those that are trapped in the darkness of Islam, that they might see the truth of who Isa is, Jesus and embrace him as Lord and Savior. Lord, whether they're in Iran, whether they're in India, Tibet, whether they're in Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Madagascar, Uruguay, whether they're in Chile, Argentina, whether they're in Wangzhou, China, Lord, we pray that your name might resonate and resound to the nations. 
Lord, we know that you're doing a work here. Help us to be obedient and partner in that. Help us to be continually be men and women of prayer, laying our lives before you. Help us to be to make a short account of sin, but also to, to lift up those who are struggling and then going through all kinds of difficulties. And Lord, help us to always going out into the, the oceans of this world to share the truth of Jesus Christ for those that have been shipwrecked by all kinds of sin, that have been wrecked by their own rebellion. And Lord, may you save them to the glory and honor of your name. May we be a lighthouse to this city and to the state and to the farthest reaches of the world. Use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, just a